Hello and welcome to Making Creativity Pay, the podcast where we talk to people in creative industries about how they promote and market their work. I'm Dan Barnett and on this episode I'll be speaking to author Andy Stanton. Andy's written a book called Benny the Blue Whale, a descent into story, language and the madness of ChatGPT, which is available in print and also as an audiobook with ChatGPT voiced by Nish Kumar. As you'll hear from our talk, this doesn't mean he's typed a simple prompt and then printed the result. Rather, it's a fascinating look at language and a great lesson on what makes good writing by considering what ChatGPT can't do, as well as looking at what it can manage. The following clip is a sample from the intro of the book, which details how Andy got sucked into this world. My cousin Dave's a retired software engineer who dedicated four decades of his life to the industry. He's one of those people who probably sent their first email in 1982 or something, when only computer folks and the military knew about such things. As you may know, I usually write children's books. I'm best known for a series called Mr. Gum, which trades in wordplay, cartoonish surrealism, and convoluted self-referential funnies. In other words, meta-humour. Dave knows my weaknesses. To bait his hook, He texted me a ChatGPT-generated screenplay, which mashed up the worlds of Breaking Bad and Mr. Gum. Then he'd asked the bot to remix and reframe the starting point in all sorts of amusing ways. A newspaper review praising the screenplay. A literary critique of the screenplay slamming it. Another critique from a rival publication, denouncing the first critique as a paid hit piece. 11th of the 12th, 2022, 7.38pm. And yes, ha, I guess I'm in. It took me a full 12 minutes to decide I wanted to ruin my life. As well as the book, we discuss Andy's long-running podcast, Ask the Nincompoops, as well as not reading your reviews and the difficulties of promotion in the social media age. I started my chat with Andy by asking him to give a quick introduction about himself and his work. Hi, everyone. I'm Andy Stanton. I am best known for being a children's author. I am the creator, author of the beloved and anarchic children's book series, Mr. Gum. I've written a bunch of picture books as well, a couple of other uh, non-Mr. Gum uh, middle, what do they call it now, middle grade children's books. Uh, I turned the Mr. Gum, uh, one of the Mr. Gum books into a musical for the National Theatre in 2019, just before the world went crazy. That was good timing. And I don't think it was a causative thing. And uh, what else? And yeah, I've, I've, I've sort of seen quite a lot of the, the industry over the years. I've been doing that since 20, uh, 2006 was my first published book. In recent times, I fell into the wormhole that is ChatGPT, the demon du jour, which is threatening all sorts of artistic and other livelihoods along with its sibling AIs, and I wrote a book about ChatGPT called Benny the Blue Whale, A Descent into Story, Language, and the Madness of ChatGPT, which takes as its starting point a novel-length story I engineered with ChatGPT about Benny the Blue Whale, who is a blue whale with a tiny penis. So I fell into this story by asking it to tell me a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis, and it started telling me a story, because that's what ChatGPT does. And I kept with it because I, I, it was a natural experiment. World-changing technology meets world-class idiot. And uh, I carried on until I, found, until I got to the point where I thought, this is so interesting. To me, it seems to be revealing something about the creative process itself. I'm not arguing or advocating for ChatGPT being a great or even a good author. But the way I interfaced with it was very interesting. It seemed like an exploded diagram of the creative process. So I wrote a book about that. So it's a story, and around it, it's it's annotated. It's a nested story. 
with yeah. me talking about creativity around it. There you go. How will that do? One million words. I am ChatGPT. Blah, 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 blah. It's going to be interesting. I listened to you. Is it the Failing Writers podcast? Yes. Yeah, they're good podcast. That, 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 was, that was really interesting. Um, kind of chat on that. So, I mean, I'll... I'll push people towards that for the more of the creative side of things and yeah kind of yeah, for you, sure. the descent into madness i mean it'd be good to talk about some of that here but you know i'll, I'll push people to that as well it was, it was really really interesting and um as a writer what made you kind of get into and be interested in in chat gpt oh well uh it it does something that i'm very interested in right it intersects with a lot of people's interests and the way it intersected for me was that this is a machine that has uh scraped such a vast amount of textual data created by humans that it has analyzed and found patterns in the way that words are connected and resonate with each other and what might be likely to come next so it's kind of a, it's kind of got a madness of crowds uh, sorry uh, sorry a wisdom of crowds <laughs> Uh, no, see, I can't get away from madness when I talk about ChatGPT. It's got a kind of wisdom of crowds uh, knowledge about, you know, what broadly human, what connections humans make when they use language. And as a writer, I'm particularly interested in wordplay, uh, the, th- the things I write, and in sort of finding resonances and rhymes and rhythms and bounces and little echoes. Uh, I- I'm much more about style than I am about story at some level. You know, I'm a uh, so I'm constantly going around turning words over in my mind and thinking about how things connect and how how we can put things together in new and unusual ways. That's what I like. And why does one made up simile feel correct? Like in my books, I sort of say uh, in my kids books, I've used um, silent as an avocado or uh, as friendly as toast. And these are, you know, these aren't real acknowledged phrases, but they feel correct. It's like when Salvador Dali takes the uh, lobster and puts it as the receiver of the old-fashioned Bakelite telephone. And you go, well, okay, I can see the visual rhyme of the lobster shell on the old telephone, but also there seems to be a deeper resonance, a deeper connection. Anyway, ChatGPT burlesques the kind of things I'm interested in, so I fell into this relationship with it. Uh, I suppose it was uh, a perfect enzyme and I was the perfect catalyst for one brand of its dark magic. You started playing around with it. At what point did you think, there's a book in this? Or, I want to write a book on this. Well, one of the things that really worried me was that people would think, oh, here's an opportunist little so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> he, can't, he, he can't be bothered to write the books anymore. So he's found the machine that does it. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I, I, I can't stand, I can't stand easy peasy art of any sort. Or I, I want to see toil and pain and blood and sweat. I think if you didn't hurt yourself, trying you didn't try hard enough right so uh i i I naturally fell into playing with chat gpt when i got fascinated enough to start pursuing it after my own heart which was to see well let's see what happens if it's a novel towards the end of writing the quote unquote novel i started to think this is so interesting i want to tell the world about the way i see this machine in relation to what i do so it was probably about a month into playing with chat gpt that i thought i conceived the notion of a book within a book and that because it's it's not a case of you said put in a prompt write a 30,000 word piece on on a certain thing you know it, it's it's no. it's a lot it's a lot more iterative and like you said you know it kind of i think you've said other things it kind of folds in on itself it's very meta it's it's not just a straight process well, yeah, well, firstly, if you've played with ChatGPT, you'll know that it, it won't give you 30,000 words off one prompt. I mean, there's no reason it can't, but 
it couldn't do if they reprogrammed it. But uh, it will give you a short burst of stuff. But then what's so interesting about it is that you can then keep the context going and say, oh, tell me more about that. Or, oh, did that, uh, you know, did that happen because he had problems with his mother or whatever? And it will add more content. So, you can, you know, you can fall into a collaborative improvisation with it. I'd seen a lot of people doing uh, short form monkey tricks with it which is what everyone does when they start playing with it, me too. And then, and then it, it was just a natural progression to, for me to see what it was like as a recontextualizing machine over the long haul. It's, it's not, like you said, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. No, it, no, it's not that it's not easy. It, it, yeah, the, the pain comes in writing, really writing the book about the story. The, generating a story with that thing was confounding and hilarious and interesting. But it wasn't painful like writing. I, I, I think I used my storytelling instincts and experience to get somewhere that, you know, was unique to me, just as if you did something over the long haul, you'd get somewhere that was unique with you. And my, for me, my obsessions run to reality versus fiction. And that's what the story of Benny the Blue Whale itself ultimately becomes. It becomes very, very metafictional. And at some point, I have a lot of the characters in the book start to write AI novels of their own with fictional AIs. Uh, there's one called Penelope 2.0, and there's another one called Gigi. So there's characters, there's fictional characters within the, fi the, the fictional reality of my world with ChatGPT. And then it dives down again. And then so Benny starts writing a book at, with an AI. And then one of Benny's characters in his novel starts writing a book with an AI. And I start to lose my <laughs> mind around that point. During the actual creative process with ChatGPT itself, I, I, I thought, oh, this is magic. I'm, I'm actually, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I half believed that I was delving down to a new substrata of reality because it's so convincing that something magic's going on. But, you know, when I came out of the I, the dream, I, I was able to analyze it a lot more clearly. But again, take take an AI, the AI out of the scenario, just remove it algebraically from the equation. And this is what all creation is anyway. You have to be quite mad to believe or half believe that the fiction you're making, you have to believe that it's real at some level. Otherwise, you can't get to the end of it. So, you, you know, this is why people do go mad making artworks of, of any sort uh, long before AIs came along. You know, the, the AI was just another kind of chaos engine to reflect back my own chaos engine, you know. It yeah. all, it's, it's, it, I, I guess it, it's, all, it's all about me at the end of the day. And that's what yeah. AIs show us, I think. I mean, how different was it? Because if you're writing a normal book, it, to some extent, you know, even if things aren't fully formed, probably everything is already in your head. Not so, at so, all, no. No? I, um, no, I mean, there's, you know, writers write in, uh, show me 100 writers and I'll show you 100 MOs, you know, workflows. Uh, I believe I've read somewhere that Kurt Vonnegut, who I talk about in Benny as well, I talk about a lot of other creative processes and reference a lot of other literature and stuff in my own examination of it in a desperate attempt to make it more highbrow. No, no, I mean, this is what, you know, what I think about. But um, Kurt Vonnegut, I believe, used to write very strangely. He would uh, let's say he was on page 78, he would write 78, and if it wasn't completely how he wanted it, he would screw it up, toss it in the waste paper bin, and rewrite 78. Nope, not quite right. Chuck it away again. 20th page 78, great, that's the one, then move on. I've never heard of anyone else writing like that. There are other writers who um, have everything plotted before they begin, more or less. There are other writers, Stephen King, I believe, is one of them, just sort of starts out with the opening conceit and improvises. 
I fall somewhere between the two. I usually, uh, well, well, before I can write any book, I usually have the start, uh, the the engine of the story. Oh, oh sorry, the um, maybe the 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 uh, kindling wood, the the thing that's going to set the story in motion. You know, what does the character want? What are they trying to stop? And I have a very rough ending in mind, and I have a suspicion that I can put enough twists and turns in the middle, but it changes a lot as I go along. And by the time I've got to the ending of any given story I'm working on, a much better one has usually occurred from some of the little accidents and details that have come in along the way. They, they will inform a better ending. But I, I'm quite improvisational. It's interesting to talk about kind of happy happy accidents. Um, you know, I, I kind of use ChatGPT, you know, day jobs in analytics. You know, if you want to program something, so you say, right, I want to get this data from here. I want to manipulate it like this. I want to pop out a chart at the end. And, you know, most of the time it's fine. But uh -huh. sometimes it comes up with functions that don't exist, um, which, well, is a yeah, which is a pain. If, yeah, it it's, it's, which is a pain if you're trying to write something that has to form a, you know, a specific yes. syntax, otherwise it doesn't work. But within yes, fiction, yes. obviously, that's that's a benefit rather than a hindrance, well, I guess. A, a benefit. Uh, yes, that is. Uh, well, that was one of the things I was interested in, again, which is um, I've spent my life kind of reverse engineering my understanding of reality from fiction. And fi uh, fiction, uh, so, so, and ChatGPT, there are lots of people like yourself using it in quote-unquote the real world with quote-unquote real things. And you find out very quickly that unless you are, you, you know, you, you, have, you have to shepherd it very, very carefully, right? And fact check everything it's telling you because it sounds very authoritative, but it's constantly hallucinating and making up stuff to fill in the gaps. So as a, 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 in, the, in the world of fact and data, it's a very dangerous machine. Fiction is neither truth nor falsehood. There's, it's a kind of um, semi-permeable fault line in between the two, and that's where I operate. So to me, again, that's one of that I had no doubt when ChatGPT came along that it was anything other than a machine that had been tailor-made for me. So I fell into, you know, I forget the other hundred million people using it. I, 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 and I'm not, I'm not, I'm sort of sounding tongue-in-cheek arrogant. I'm not being arrogant. I'm saying that it came along and it, sedu it seduced me. And my understanding of it was, oh, here's the machine that shows me my own obsession. Yeah, and it was only it, later, again, after working with Benny, that I thought about all the ramifications of all the hallucinations for people who are working it with it at a factual level, where you have to be so so careful. Just started listening to the audiobook. You know, you kind of talk about calling the whale Benny and kind of thinking about well, what that meant mm. to you and all those kind of things. And it's it's kind of interesting that you know, you've you've that you know, it's just come up with that partly random, partly because you think it might be alliterative. But then you put yes, all yes. those you put all those feelings onto it that maybe the machine doesn't right. necessarily have. Yeah, right. That's right. So I I say uh, tell me a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis. L uh, literally not knowing this will affect the the next x months of my life, possibly the rest of my life. I've, what have I done to my brain? But uh, I say tell me a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis. It goes, oh sure, there was a blue whale called Benny. I happen to love the name. That to me is an analog of just falling in love with an idea that occurred to you anyway. You don't know why one idea is going to grab your attention and the next won't. Now, if it had said, oh, uh, Brendan the blue whale, maybe. I have nothing against the name Brendan, but I know for a fact that I it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have found it, it wouldn't have appealed to, that wouldn't have been the idea I'd have gone with. And I would have just gone, oh, well, I'm going to bed now, woken up the next morning, <laughs> typed into chat GPT, tell me about smelly animals, name us a smelly animal, and just gone back to monkey tricks. It just, it just, 
the point is that it, it it happened to generate something that tickled my fancy. And then as a human, I assign importance to that and go, oh, yes, let me hear more about this. Every time the computer is cut, every time the computer comes up with something I like, it's more grist to my mill. And I and, and, and I go, oh, let's concentrate on that. I didn't realise that was going to be a plot point. So we guide each other. And, of course, this thing has no intent. We're a little way off from uh, AGI or ASI, is that the next one? <laughs> Artificial superintelligence, where we're basically at the singularity and we're complete, you know, we there's no need for humans anymore. We're, we're away off from actual artificial general intelligence, which implies um, something akin to the human brain uh, uh, with emotional intent and a simulacrum of all that. So at this point, the AIs that people like you and I are playing with, they they don't actually have intent. We are the ones spitting back, or, or sorry, bouncing back uh, 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 our own predilections and preferences and going, oh gosh, yes, that, yes, that, yes, tell me more about that character. And then it becomes, very quickly it becomes, uh, you forget who's prompting what and you sort of think, wow, this machine's magic. It knows all the stuff I like. No, we know all the stuff we like. But again, to me, that's very interesting in how we create anything. Every time I sit down without a computer or without an AI in the middle of it, in between me and my story and think about what I like, I'm kind of doing a little echolocation on my own internal databanks, right? Mm. When you kind of put this together, I mean, what's the kind of hit rate? Because you're saying, you know, it, it takes a matter of months to, to put it yeah, together. It's not, it's not a quick thing. Are you kind of almost sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph, and then you tweak it, tweak it, tweak it until that paragraph works and you move on? Or No, no you can't do that with ChatGPT, right? You can't, do, you can't really do the Kurt Vonnegut way of writing, right? Um, you, you can't edit. You, you have to do it on the fly because yeah, uh, you, you can, mm, it's hard to get into... Uh, in the abstract without sort of going through it together and boring your listeners to bits. But um, it, one, of the uh, one of the many interesting things to me is that I had to rescind control and let the, basically, the, the computer will spit out loads of shit, as we all know, right? And it will do it in beautifully formed, but kind of essentially quite drab and dull and bland prose. But to me, that's kind of funny anyway. There's a kind of ugly beauty in in rubbishness, like um, the way that, uh, for instance, South Park is a brilliant, brilliant piece of art, but it looks intentionally quote unquote ugly. And it's very hard to make something as designed and done with forethought and invention it, 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 and intent. It's very hard to make something look as basic as that. You know, they've made it look like uh, children's craft paper. That's what South Park looks like, but it's yeah. a very chosen, uh, very chosen aesthetic. ChatGPT happens to have this very glitchy, blocky, kind of bumpy, quite bland, corporate-ish writing aesthetic. I find that funny over the long haul. It's repetitions, it's word redundancies, it's cliches, it's occasional really really getting it wrong but in it, it, some it, it, it's frequent it's frequent uh, erosions of meaning which are very hard to trace it's like cat herding yeah to me that is part of the fabric of writing with chat gpt as it stands at the moment and that that's funny in itself but the hit rate is that every now and again well i you know I, i'm i'm the one kind of steering it steering it further into a world of my liking and it kind of, it starts to kind of quote unquote understand what i'm after it you know the more the longer i go with it 
so it kind of makes an echolocation of me as well. And it, and it starts to sound to me kind of like a Frankenstein's monster version of my own writing and obsessions. But every so, so often, because of the way these things work, because of uh, what they call a stochastic randomization, the stochastic process... Uh, uh, is that the sorry? Not stochastic randomization. It, it works. It works stochastically, which is a type of randomization where it will throw new stuff into the mix that you weren't expecting. Every so often, that results in what I call a brilliancy. Okay. Uh, taking that phrase from chess brilliances, which is a uh, a move that a chess computer will find hard to make, even though it's analysing hundreds of millions of moves a second. Even the world's greatest chess computers find it hard to find a brilliancy. Well, to my mind, every so often, ChatGPT does throw up a brilliancy and I go, my God, I want to know more about that plot point. Would I have come up with that with myself? I don't know. Uh, But it doesn't matter because it did. This is, to me, that's a truly collaborative process, uh, even though I'm collaborating with a, well, let's say an unthinking fucking idiot. <laughs> so when you're when you're putting this book together and you're trying to get it published, how do you pitch that to a publisher? How do you say I'm I'm writing this with ChatGPT? Well, great question. I mean, first thing is I pitched it to my agent and I said, um, Eve, my agent, Eve White. Hi, Eve. I want to tell you about something. Can we have a Zoom call? Sure. Okay. And then I shared my screen and I said, Eve, have you heard of ChatGPT? And she hadn't at that point. And she said no. And I said, Ah, okay. And I typed in, uh, I said, look at this screen. Tell me a story about a children's author who pitches his agent about a book written (laughs) with an artificial... And her jaw dropped. And I said, what if I told you I have thousands and thousands of words ready to go of the story I have made about this, and I want to annotate it and turn it into an exploded diagram of a novel? And she went, I think we should start contacting publishers. I said, I agree. So then what we did was, um, what any agent does next is to send the package out to uh, X number of publishers. In this case, we sent a version of the Benny story, and we sent it out with a, I think, a four-page pitch document, really, I guess you'd call it, where I said, uh, everyone's doing this, that or the other with AIs, they're extremely frightening, they're extremely unknown. This is how I interacted with it. I think it's an, for me, it's an investigation into fiction, I would like to make this an annotated novel, I would like to use this as a starting point to explore themes of creativity and human agency, and what AIs are doing to us. We sent it out to about 15 publishers, most of them all of them but one, there's a spoiler, turned us down for various reasons, which is just as it often is. Uh, You know, you only need one to say yes. But uh, a lot of the reasons people turned us down, some people just didn't like it, which is always a possibility. Some people were very, very, very sceptical about the whole AI angle because it's very threatening to a lot of industries and certainly it's threatening to the book publishing industry. Yeah. Other people didn't like the fact that there was a tiny penis involved. There were, there were loads of reasons to hate this hate this book. And uh, again, it, to me, it was a mark. It, it was a mark of just how unplanned it was. That you know, if I were trying to sell this thing in cold blood, I wouldn't make it a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis. That's just asking for trouble. It's how are you going to sell that? So that that kind of shows my integrity. No, this was just the idea I started with. That's how we pitched it. Like uh, the AI story plus four pages of. Honestly, I will be quoting Vonnegut and Orwell. You know, with that, like you said, you know the possible the possible problems of it um, of the story about being about a tiny penis. Um, you know, if yes, 
but both that and also the whole possible complexity of chat GPT. You know, if you're on, let's say, BBC Three Counties Radio and they say, tell me about the book, you know, <laughs> do, 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 you, do you ignore the penis bit? And how far do you go into uh, large language models and the rest of it? Well, yeah, uh, no, you don't ignore it. But um, I was on, uh, I, I was talking on um, Queensland, sorry, no, it was Melbourne ABC Radio in, in Australia recently. And uh, I said, uh, they were asking me about the book, of course. And I said, well, it's about a blue whale with a, and and I said, what what word, what word would you like me to use? Can I use the medical word? They said yes. So I said penis. On another show, I've said I've sort of it's all about getting an ear for it, you know. On another show, I said uh, a blue whale with a tiny, shall we say, appendage at this point time in the morning, you know, the the, the penis or the appendage or the member is not the point of the exercise it's it's only there to illustrate that we can start with any idea and explore it from there but yeah that, that, that i think that's just an exercise in pr wherever you go you know you you read the room and yeah you don't you know you're only as bawdy as the room allows i don't want to be bawdy i'm not interested in it i've just uh but pe- penis isn't a bad word but i accept that it may not be you know uh good li- uh, listening fodder for radio two listeners at 11 a.m so yeah. And in terms of the technical side, how far into large language models and things like that did you discuss? And I mean, like you said, you, you said your agent didn't particularly know about it at the time. Obviously, things progress so fast in that now. Well, I'm, I, I was a layperson, right? And I, I mean, I suppose I still am but a layperson with a bit of experience. You know, ChatGPT hit me from a, like a bolt in the, from the blue, you know, and it picked up 100 million users worldwide within two months. And Facebook took four years to do that. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say those 100 million people using it were mostly like me, people who just found the magical user experience, who had never considered AI except, oh, that's something that's going to be with us in some form I don't understand in 20 years. And suddenly here it was on our doorstep. Uh, In the book, I realized quite quickly that given the time constraints and my own particular interests in using this as an intersection of to intersect with my own obsessions. I, I'm not going. This isn't supposed to be a book that goes deep, deep into the technology, but it raises a lot of questions about the technology. And I have, you know, some understanding that I gleaned along the way in writing the book and in interrogating and learning about how LLMs work. You know, my understanding of it is constantly evolving, and I'm quite lazy as a factual at the factual level. As I said, I reverse reverse engineered most of my learning uh, and understanding of the world through fiction. For the first time, I suddenly turned myself into a quasi-journalist here, amongst other things. But it's not, it's not a deeply technical book. But there are, there are plenty of deeply, te- deeply technical books and articles online for those who want to read that, right? And of course, I've increasingly sort of tried to digest as many of them as possible. But to spit all that stuff out on the fly unless you know what you're talking about, is just asking for trouble because you are then yourself, ChatGPT, just hallucinating and getting things wrong. I, I, tr- I tried to make it as non-technical as possible yeah. whilst giving the shape of how the LLM works. I, I couldn't really resist, obviously. I don't, I don't know whether people have done this to you, but I, I put into ChatGPT what questions I should kind of ask you. And so I said, oh, you know, nuts. kind of talk about it. It's interesting. I said, give me three questions about creativity. I should ask Mr. Gamorther. Andy Stanton. And he goes, blah, blah, blah. He goes, like, one about inspiration and creativity. Can you share some insights in your creative process? Then there's one about balancing structure and creativity. Hmm. It says, your books often feature a delightful mix of structure, storytelling, and wild, unpredictable elements. 
And so it's, it's kind of interesting that it kind of, I think where we are at the moment is, you know, on any kind of artificial intelligence, you get that six out of 10 on everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're, 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 they're perfectly sensible questions, but they are effectively, how do you get your crazy ideas? Yeah, well, well, what's so interesting is they're very broad mashups as well, right? Like you could you could have, as I'm sure you know, you could have carried on prompting to try and make it a little more... Uh, a little more specific or kind of a, a little more edgy than that. But actually, in the end, you really, you know what, we, I mean, you know what questions you want to ask me, really. So you're only asking ChatGPT to echo back something that, you know, if you direct it that much, you're really directing it to ask me what you want to ask me anyway. Hmm. The other thing is that, you know, it, it's it, it's quite funny, again, in the very Frankensteinish monster's way, to see it putting those two ideas together. Like if you've said, I'm going to interview a guy who's written a cookery book about salads. Can you, uh, what should I ask that guy about where he gets his inspiration? And it would have said, wouldn't it? It would have said, you are, you write so convincingly about your delicious sounding food. Is that, you know, it would have just said that and then said, where'd you get your ideas? And it's not yeah. a very good mashup. It's just, it's just two sentences that answer the brief. So I have so what what's the question I have freewheeling ideas and imagination and how do I balance that with structure well uh that that's the question uh it's, I mean it, it's not a bad question it's just yeah. it's just it, but it's just very chat gpt but um it's it's actually not a bad question at all if you are writing very surreal uh, um anarchic stuff like I do with bizarro humor and larger than life characters it's particularly easy to just keep being inventive i think and just go oh the man fell over in some trifle and a cat flew out of his ear and then the cat started barking instead of meowing and a fire engine heard the barks and came out and tried to put out the cat with a hose and you can do that ad infinitum right yeah but or i can i can but but how do you balance it with structure well what you do is you have to shape you have you have to use that bizarre humor as just one element of your work and shape it with all the things that any story needs, like emotional stakes and emotional reality. So that's one thing that ChatGPT doesn't do, yet it doesn't understand emotional affect. So everything is very surface. So I would say the biggest failing of the Benny story, in a lit crit way, the Benny story itself, is that where's the emotion? It's it's very kinetic, and it's far, it, fast moving, but without any depth but the depth comes from my input i think anyway sorry yeah i know it's interesting on that kind of reading some of the reviews you know the good reviews but like you said they say about the story bit kind of it doesn't work necessarily perfectly but you'd almost wouldn't want that because if someone was saying this is the best book ever written you know that kind of puts every author out of a job <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i, I wasn't I, I i'm not going oh brilliant uh, here's the war and peace machine or that you know at, at points i do think uh, when I was under its spell, I thought, my God, I found a pocket Vonnegut. That's what I thought. <laughs> but no, there's no such thing as a pocket Vonnegut. There's no such thing as a pocket Thomas Pynchon. You you know, we, this isn't what... The, the, it's not the point of the book to say, look, everybody, me and this machine made the best novel ever, because it's not even the, in the top 100 million. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I like the story because it's so silly and it reflects my obsessions. Its failings are what show us something as well about writing, as much as its successes. And so, like I said, listening to the audiobooks, you got that as well as the book. I mean, how because this isn't a straight novel that you have an author yes. read. You know, there's lots of in the book footnotes, asides in in the audiobook. I mean, how did yeah. you find the the two, and how do you th how do you think the two work? So, in the book, 
yeah, the, the story takes place on the left-hand pages, and then beneath the story, going across the book, are my footnotes, and on the right-hand pages, there are extra marginalia from me making little observation or wisecracks or saying, oh my God, look at it now, it's gone crazy, or whatever, you know. So the book is very, uh, it's very schematic and very unusually formatted. How do you do that as the audiobook? So, well, firstly, um, we got somebody to play me. That was me. That seemed useful. And then we got someone else to play ChatGPT, who was the amazing Nish Kumar. And then I had to spend another three or four weeks with the lovely lady from the audiobook company, Georgia. And we went back and forth deciding where the footnotes and marginalia would fall chronologically as you listen. So we had to do a bit of a bit of uh, reordering and sometimes we had to break up a footnote here and there and chuck it in at di slightly different places. So it's, th this book's been, a, I, I said at the start that unless you hurt yourself, you didn't try hard enough. This book has hurt me more than any any other book I've ever done. And to me, it only it only makes sense if you hurt yourself. So I took the machine that does all the work for you and turned it into the hardest work of my life. And that makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. Haven't listened to how it's all been stitched together. I hope it's followable. I mean, it's interesting kind of choosing a niche for it. I mean, did you consider using an artificial voice or, you know, there's so many now? No, no, no. not at all. Because uh, the artificial voice has... Uh, no, it has to be engaging. I want I want to present ChatGPT as a character in its own right, and yeah. to illustrate to illustrate the human our our reactions to ChatGPT to cut to cartoonize ChatGPT and to kind of um, present it as a character who's you know very very fractured and might go from one register one moment to another register the next and start and and suddenly for no reason at all you know suddenly go oh. No, I'm afraid that's an inappropriate response. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to have a human interpret what is mad about ChatGPT and give us a performance that shows increasingly AIs are being used or will be used to read audiobooks because yeah. they, were, they are dialing in the simulation of natural emotion and speech, natural sounding emotion and speech, you know, into AI readings. So you're going to have human texts read by machine so it's very amusing to me that we have a machine text being read by a human as part of this audiobook right I, I you know i like that i take the technology and do everything backwards with it really and explore it from that angle so it, it makes me laugh and also nish is very funny yes you know you, you you're not going to get that level certainly not yet i mean it, it's certainly coming you know there's there's sites where for example you can have snoop dogg's voice so you know you can put some text in and it'll read it in, you know, and there's an, there's a, there's enough of niche out there that you could sample it and yeah, you're certainly not gonna yeah. get hundred percent, but you know, it's only gonna get closer and closer. I absolutely and I believe I believe you know that we could sample any any twenty seconds of this discussion of either you or I and you know, generate a broad version of ourselves which could then be tweaked and words can be put in our digital mouth which really fucking sucks did i just say fucking sucks or was that an ai that made me say that it's uh, you know th this stuff is fascinating and frightening um one of, one of the things again that interests me in a about ais is the idea that they are reducing all modalities to language so music can be translated into an understandable language by ais as can perhaps whale song to stay on topic 
uh, which I think is being done at the moment, as can the, you know, the human brain can be mapped and identified and ha- what neurons are firing where, right? As can visual information is translatable into language, of course. My question is, how can we tra- translate language into language? You know, what, what does that mean? Wh- whose language is this, right? And why is language, why does it seem to be the, the base level of currency? in the universe you know Uh, and are we going to you know if I go too far down that line of chop logic in my own head I start thinking well maybe there you know is all about the universal om in the beginning was the sound you know language is a network of meanings and associations and resonances and values uh, playing off each other language is the language so I I think my own career you know what what I trade in is words and that's language and it's different to music or visual arts and I think I think music and visual arts are falling much faster yeah to the rendering of synthetics, synthetic products that you know AI AI can achieve, whereas language is a harder bastion to crack. Yes, I think that's that's the thing. You know, maybe a sentence is one thing. You know, it, it kind of grows. You know, to make a sentence that makes sense, fine. Paragraph maybe, but then yeah, once you get all the way to a book, you know, you've got so many things that can go wrong that you end up with nonsense if you have to do it in one and, go. And and also, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you decide when? to deploy the telling detail the the uh you know the the um the punch in the solar plexus of a really emotional moment in text right that's really difficult whereas in music for example a minor chord will to western ears at least sound sad right and there is there are some maths behind music which i don't think apply to the writing of a novel say i'm not saying music's easy of course it's not but it's i think it's easier to manifest emotional affect with uh, again, you, you know, if you, if you play a piano, well, if you play a, a note of music, the timbre of the instrument you're playing on has an emotional effect, and the attack, whether you're playing hard or soft, whether you're playing staccato or legato. Whereas the word tree is just the word tree, whether I write it, you write it, or ChatGPT writes it. It's much harder to build up from these kind of quote unquote neutral building blocks. I know words aren't neutral, but compared to, you know, something that's they're, they're unadorned building blocks, whereas a a musical note or a brush stroke in a visual art is that that can be rendered in many different ways. Yeah. On the more financial side of things, because I'm I think one of yes. the things I said to you was not for this this book itself, but I'm interested in kind of how Spotify seemed to be hoovering up absolutely everything and are now offering audiobooks. And I think I mentioned to you that the Mr. Gum books, I think there's there's nine in the series, so they're in a uh-huh. in a package and that's available as an audiobook to listen for no extra cost as a premium customer. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm, I mean, I'm happy with it. I mean, this is the thing. It, it, it's I've spoken to a couple of authors where they go, "What? I didn't know about this." And you I know, did not know about it till you mentioned it. Yeah, it, it's it seems whether they're going to go down the same kind of route that kind of squeezes musicians to squeeze authors, or whether it's a bit more generous. Well, look, I don't, I don't know comparatively, right? Um, because I've been swimming in these waters for some nearly twenty years now, and well, about seventeen years, and uh, I, you know, I have my own sort of set of parameters and expectations, and triumphs and disappointments, and philosophical attitude towards all these things, you know. I've done very well comparatively out of the Mr. Gum books. Those have bought me a career and a life. You know, I'm by no mean comfortable, but I'm more comfortable than if I hadn't 
bought my built myself a career. Well, I, I'm I'm comfortable. I'm not well off, right? But I'm very happy with what those books have given me. And to me, that seems like a very good reward for what I did, right? And I'm very grateful. Uh, along the way, there've been times when I was hotter than notter, you know, and the books were doing well at the time, and you know, it, I, I got a, a few instances where my publishers at the time, Egmont, actually bought advertising on the tube and stuff. And I'm not, I, I'm very uh, adolescent about advertising. I'm a bit Bill Hicks. I'm like, oh man, I don't want to put a dollar sign on fucking everything. You know, I am like that. That's just my ethos, right? I, no shade to, I, 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 and I, I consider myself slightly outside of it, which is bullshit because you know I'm constantly opening up emails that tell me there's 30% of something but I flatter myself as do, do a lot of people that um, I'm a bit inured from all this but no I don't like quote-unquote advertising except when it's advertising something that I'm trying to sell so yeah then it's great <laughs> but uh, there are t- you know I, I'm very I, I, I cock a snoot at it really but I it's the way of the world there have been times when I've had more marketing put my way than I do now by a long shot. Marketing's very, very thin on the ground for most authors, especially in today's climate where the front list and a very few titles are getting most of the budget. The rest of the books in any publisher's list are pretty much put out to sink or swim. And if if by chance they do pick up more traction than the next guy, then they'll, you know, they'll be brought into that magic circle over time. But they it has to be kind of by surprise uh, it's a surprise hit a sleeper hit word of mouth or maybe an author who goes out and does a lot of that marketing themselves online which I'm sure you want to talk about but things like Mr. Gum being available on Spotify for quote unquote free well firstly there's probably still some residual that I'm getting from that at some level yeah. and I, I don't know because I don't read I don't read my royalty statements granular on, on uh, to I don't read them very granularly but I trust in my agent and I trust in the contracts we signed at the time and I trust that at this point in time Egmont now Farshaw have made that deal with Spotify because it's a, a useful uh, it, it's useful to our property to be giving it away for free at this point in time so I don't you know I, I don't doubt the wisdom of it but it's not the metrics that I follow yeah, well, it's just, I had a I had a quick look at the Audible top ten yesterday, and eight of them are available for free. So even like Richard Osman's is like the most, you know, of course, yeah, is, is the is the biggest selling. But you can get it for, and you know, it's it's all about you know within music because a lot of the Spotify was kind of quite largely owned by the record companies that they're quite happy uh-huh. to kind of move the money that way, and you know, eventually the musician kind of gets screwed over, and the, yes, you know, the big question is going to be is is this a more equitable thing or is, is the same going to happen to audiobooks? I mean, it's a good question, right? At this stage in time, yeah, I'm going, oh, I'm really happy that it's on Spotify, but you're right. It might be the, you know, thin edge of the wedge, uh, thin sl- end of the wedge. I, it, the short answer is I don't know. I didn't even know they were on Spotify till you told me, but um, I, I, I suspect, I, I, I suppose my worldview, I, I expect to get stupped as a creator. I just expect it. It's not very good that I'm, you know, I roll over and play ball, but I don't have the time or resource or interest or talent to fight that system or to make that my priority. To me, the most important thing is just doing the work. I, I would rather spend more time personally wrestling with artistic demons to get out whatever I can get out than to say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take 30% of my creative time and put that into fighting for my own rights. It's not It's not because I'm noble or anything. It's just that my resources are almost entirely about trying to make myself work. Uh, someone like Tom Gray, late of Gomez, and I'm sure you know about what Tom's doing in uh, 
against Spotify, right? Yes. He's got a petition and a movement called, uh, what's it called? For the record, off the Bro- record? Broken sorry. record. No, a broken, broken record, that's right. Broken record, because the idea being he's a broken record about this subject and that the record industry is broken. It's a very good name, which it then took me a while to get from my glitchy data banks. But uh, so t- Tom's an amazing guy, and he is somewhere in his career where he's decided that, you know, he's now become really a state, uh, a spokesperson for a cause representing other artists, and I admire that tremendously. I'm just not an activist. I'm a lonely, self-obsessed, crabbed, you know, hermetic, hermetic little golem of a fucking creature, you know, who just sits around. Just, I'm happy if I if I write something that makes me happy, and then I put it out into the world. And if I'm lucky, other people pick it up and do let me have a shot, you know, shot at gold. It doesn't mean that once it's out there, I'm I I'm just like, oh great, that's that done. I do get exercised by, oh, is the book doing well? Is it not doing it well? Can we be doing more? I want PR, you know. You know, talking to you, aren't I? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk. I like to talk. I like to think about all of these things and exercise my vocal cords. And hopefully, some people like to hear me doing that. But um, you know, I, I, I want to be able to live, and I do. You know, I. I, do, I but to, to me, it's it's also like if I've worked really hard on a project and I've done my end of the bargain. And it's yeah. and I think it's good enough. And other people have backed me. I want them then. I want their various departments to be working hard enough to give my book or books a chance. You know. Okay. Uh, so you kind of see, not in a nice way, that but the publicity that's that's just not for you. You'd rather just so, someone else get on and do it. You you kind of want to be more focused. We all have to play the game to some extent yeah. now, right? And I I don't like it, but that's life. When I started out as a writer in 2000 and when Mr. Gum came out in 2006, for some years, the book world had already been moving towards being quite performative. It was a virtue if you were good on stage as well as on the page. And I'm great on stage. I'm not going to lie. I'm tremendous. I'm just really good. And I was very lucky. I had books that people wanted to read and I had, I gave good event, you know, I still do. And you can hire me by going on. And, um, I'm sure you can figure that out if you want me to come and talk at your school or book event, guys. But yeah, no, I I, I love doing events. But I didn't quite realise at the time how lucky I was that I had, that I naturally had that string to my bow as well. There are other authors who might be terrific authors, who are terrific authors, and who just don't like doing events, aren't good at events or both. And that's to their detriment. Hopefully the books still make it through. But the, the industry had demanded by that time when I became an author that if you had that string to your bow, it was going to help. Now we've moved on again. And now, for the first time since I became an author, it's increasingly dependent on something that I don't like doing, which is self-promotion. There is a massive quantitative difference and qualitative difference to me between uh, between appearing on stage and entertaining people for an hour and incidentally talking about and selling your books and going on Twitter, going on Insta, going on TikTok, God yeah. forbid, and, and pushing stuff and, uh, and being your own cheerleader. So I, I now find myself an author who hasn't got all the strings. Whereas when I started, I had the page and the stage. Sure. Well, I don't have the. I, I still have those. I don't have the self-promotional string though. 
not very well at all. I'm embarrassed. I don't like asking for things. I don't like saying, hey, I'm great. I'm having to do it a little bit at the moment, mm. but I know it, it's really hard. Everyone has to wear like 20 caps right now. Um, I mean, musicians, artists, authors, it's very, very hard for everybody. Yeah. So I, I'm finding myself like yesterday's man in that world. When you do it, though, are you disciplined to say, right, Tuesday between three and five, that's social media time and I'll bundle stuff up and you'll have it already or it'll just hang over you and now and again you'll push something out? It's more now and again. And I think, and I play it, try and play it by ear and it, it's a kind of instinctive algorithm and it's moderated by my own shame <laughs> <laughs> and uh, despondency about having to do this stuff. I don't like being the broken record for Andy Stanton. I think it's great being the broken record for associated artists in the music industry. That's worth being a broken record for. I don't think it's worth being a broken record for me. How dare I? But I have to live. I have to try and interact with this a bit. So for, in for instance, right, uh, I don't even I don't even read any reviews because I'm very thin-skinned and I just don't want it. I, it's not just being thin-skinned. Even the good ones, I don't want them in my databank because I, yeah. they... They might make me second guess myself where I go next. But I hear stuff and I hear stuff's come through and you just said, oh, there's been some nice reviews and I've heard that. And because my, my agent, she knows that I don't want to read this stuff, she sent me, she said, oh, look, the Sunday Times gave you a really great review. I know you don't want to know, but it's really great. And here's the here's the graphic and look at the graphic and look at the headline. So, of course, I tweeted that and I said, oh, brilliant review in the Sunday Times. I didn't read it, but I, right. I, I, I kind of I, when it comes to promotional stuff and when it comes to the when it comes to being in the machine of it, the promotional machine, I'm kind of like a kid watching Doctor Who behind the sofa through you know, my hands in front of my, I want to see it and I want not to. I don't, I, I please don't tell me, please. But I don't want to, I don't want to just let it, I, I don't want to abandon the book. I want to do as much as I can, but I can't, you know, I, I can't just say, uh, I, I'm not going to sit around making assets and sticking videos together by and large and making little graphics. I just don't want to do it. Yeah. It's it's kind of hard as well is that what, what you see you doing is obviously completely different to what other people see. So, so you might do, 500 things you know and some people will see 100 of them some people will see two and so yes. in your head you go jesus i'm talking about myself all the bloody time yeah it must be right. really annoying but in in fact someone might have only seen you once or twice and and that's the thing well, don't the tell me difference. that or i'll start peppering it um <laughs> yeah no no you're you're right it's a very we get very flawed feedback from um you know, from social media, obviously, right? And from everything we do, we think, you know, again, this is similar to having a book out as well. You know, you think it's the most important thing in the world. The world doesn't care, <laughs> you know, but but if, if you, you know, if you stop to think about the world not caring, you'd never do any creative work because, yeah. you know, if you really realised how small you were most of the time, you, you wouldn't even do it, I think. You don't do it for success, but you. But if, if you think about all the other things you could be doing in life and all the burning issues out there, why make anything? You know, you have to have some sort of inflated, warped view of yourself to do anything creative, I think. Uh, it's not an arrogance, it's just a... Um, or it can be, but it's, it's, ne it's not necessarily an arrogance. It's just a way to fool yourself into thinking that you need to pursue these obsessional thoughts. And then on social, you're right, you know, you sort of go, oh, that one got two, two likes, it's rubbish, or that one got a thousand likes, I'll do more of that. But you never know what you're getting back. Uh, there's industries around this and to help you market yourself and stuff. And I, ah, I'm, I'm quite old fashioned. It says the guy who just wrote the book with <laughs> an artificial intelligence. I, but again, you know, I I, I, ref, I I poured myself into that AI and came back with a reflection of me. I did it 
in a way that is bumpy and old fashioned, like a comfortable old armchair, I think. And that's part of that's part of the gag as well. You know, didn't sit down and try and write um, a story about Alpha Centauri or Beetlejuice or something. You know, I went to I went to nonsense cartoon whales with tiny penises and enormous penises and magic vaginas under the waves. You know, so again with social media and promo and stuff, I have a very kind of nebulous, amorphic kind of. I just I, you know I, I stoke the fires occasionally and say, hey, wouldn't it be great to pick this up for Christmas right now on Twitter? But I don't do that much. I like talking, as you might have noticed. Yeah. I, I really like yabbering on. I, th- I think, you know, that that I'll just do for the fun of it. And hopefully people enjoy listening to that and want to find my book as well. I don't know if you've got another five, ten minutes to talk about Ask the Nincompoops. Yeah. And talk about podcasting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's quite interesting as well, because... Um, that is interesting. I forgot I did that. I do more. I do more than I give myself credit for. Sometimes I do less than I'd like, but more than I think. Because yes, because I think I had a quick look. Started in 2018, but you were kind of different to the rest of the world. Pandemic comes along and you stop the podcast, whereas everyone else kind of kind of <laughs> jumped re- in. I always, always do it bass backwards, right? Um, the reason we stopped doing Ask the Nincompoops during pandemic was probably major depression, and also. Uh, we used to do Ask the Nincompoops where we'd have kids come into the studio accompanied, obviously, by their parents or guardians. And uh, we wouldn't just kidnap kids and bring them in and talk nonsense. And that would be horrific, not to say verging on illegal. Uh, Ask the Nincompoops is a show that me and comedian actress Carrie Quinlan present where we take questions from kids and they say, why is the sky blue? And we just make up nonsense we go oh well you see that's because god ran out of the other crayon or whatever you know who invented cheese oh that was invented by a farmer in the 15th century and a cow called darren whatever we just riff but we used to do it with actual kids in the studio and it wasn't for a long time until we thought uh, uh when pandemic came along we had to shut it down and then afterwards we thought well, wouldn't it be easier if we didn't have kids in the studio anyway and now we just do it where we have questions from the kids, but we don't have to shepherd the kids as well. We should have done that during pandemic. That's what you're telling me. We missed yet again, yet again, I missed a saleable opportunity to double down and produce more episodes. And you're right. I do it backwards. Everything I, everything in my life, by the way, I've been told I've done, you know, at school, you run wrong, you do this wrong, you do that wrong. <laughs> I've made a career out of it, so I don't mind. You know, I, I again, like money and success and numbers and ratings are great. Everyone wants them, but uh, they're not my. They're not what energizes me. It, it's just whether I think I've done the good work. I'd love all the other stuff on top, but it's gravy. If if it comes, then lucky me. You know, I, I want it to come. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't exercise me. You know, you've got the book out, so you're kind of publicizing it and everything else but is there already another book in the works and is god no i'm recovering yeah so for as a as an author now are you done with chat gpt have you scratched that itch or Uh, no it's not it's not the new norm i think definitely not and it's i'm like again i'm not an advocate of great this is how books should be no god no I, I can't imagine ever ever wanting to take another deep dive into chat gpt for the purposes of discussion or fiction or either or both this was something that happened, but then I can't. I can't say I never will. If, if I if something came, it, like just in in the entire in the pure abstract, if an idea comes along, whether or not it's associated with investigating something in the real world, like ChatGPT, or something totally fictional, 
If the idea comes along and takes hold of you, you find that you have no choice. I can't imagine wanting to do anything else with ChatGPT, but for the but for the sake of making an artistic point, if something were to fall into my lap that's that got my neurons firing, then I would. But no, uh, in all serious, uh, well, that was serious. But in uh, uh, in all probability, whatever I do next, I've decided I'd really like to do something very small, very quiet, and very pretty because I just like to do something that's as opposite as possible to what I've just been through, because I'm not kidding when I say that trying to follow my own creative process and document that, and trying to follow and document ChatGPT's part in that process drove me to the edge of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and I'm very proud that it did, because otherwise, like I say, I wouldn't have tried hard enough. But I, I need to do something very... If, I, if this were the 70s and I were a rock band, I'd be saying, we just got to go and get our heads together in the country for a while. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of the ethics around all of this. And yes. obviously, you know, your books were... You know the Mister Gun books, for example, you know heavily illustrated. Mm-hmm. And you, you were kind of saying that that's possibly an easier thing mm-hmm. for a computer to kind of do. What do you think about the kind of ethics of you know, whether it's writing stories or illustrations and those kind of things? I think it's terrible. Uh, I think it's terrible that it's going to become an industry norm. Right? I don't think it's essentially that different from where culture's been heading increasingly faster for the last X years. Right? Since the internet, the the internet is a theft machine essentially right it's people take memes that that's the currency right that that's the currency that the internet trades in it's memes you take something from a movie or a picture book or this or that and you put a new caption on it you reformat it right you show it from a new angle and you pass it around for free but the sites that are getting traffic from people trading in memes are monetizing your in jokes right mm. so they are it's theft by it's theft at one remove right they're entirely happy places like um instagram and reddit and everywhere else is basically really happy for the world to trade in memes so we all do it at a kind of personal level which is no worse than sort of saying to your friend hey look your name's billy and this place says billy's barbers and i took a photo of it and i wrote underneath look it's your barbershop billy because it's but we do we do the maths doesn't work anymore because everything's stealable everything's transferable everything is uh copyable and remixable you know of course places like instagram now have remix you can remix somebody else's somebody else's already stolen and remixed content right none of that in itself well the fact that the facts that the fact that mega sites like meta trade on other people's propensity for being a magpie that's already pretty unethical but to to bake that further into the culture and say we can now cut out actual human creators and whereas we might have got a, an artist to illustrate or an illustrator or a cartoonist to illustrate this newspaper article now we don't need to do that we can just remix it from already extant things and extant things and just cut that out and that's pure profit this yeah. is a really worrying development i think it's different i, th- I think words are more different difficult again like i say but that uh, that's only maybe a some uh, that's only a nicety maybe right it's my mr gum books are mashed up into chat gpt as you found mm. because when you asked about chat uh Mr. Gum creator, it knew to say things like, oh, you're so anarchic. Tell me how you get your, you know, it knows what Mr. Gum is, right? Yeah. I don't really mind being a part of the culture, but I mind that the culture thinks that, th- thinks that everything is now, is now grist to, to be remixed rather than produce genuine new work. And that, 
and to do people out of jobs. I, I think it's terrifying where, where that's heading, right? A lot of people will maybe transfer their skills a level up or a level across or a level wherever to become prompt engineers or to become people who know how to make the AI, how to make the AIs work better than the next guy. But a lot, but again, it's like me being an author and saying when I started out, I didn't need to be a self promoter. Why should I, right? If you're a if you're a commercial artist, why should you be naturally good at or naturally in favour of transferring your skills to cope with AI or die? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I I think that I think the morals and the the, the ethics of it are extremely precarious, and maybe. Uh, one one way to stem the tide of all of this is to start putting in hi- uh, higher guardrails and watermarks on available property and ma- making available property unavailable or making it accounted for. Yes, it's it's only going to get the cycle is going to get faster and faster of of this kind of stuff. I mean, you talk about the prompt engineers. You know, that was you know maybe six to nine months ago. People talking that's going to be the new big job. But then, obviously, once people have fed that in, well, that gets sucked into the pipeline. Yeah, yeah, and then gets you know, down. You you don't need a prompt engineer now because you people understand the prompt engineer, and and so things are going to just get smaller and smaller. If you read too much about where IAs are going and where they could go, and you get onto this singularity and this superintelligence and everything, it's very convincing because it you can you can sort of imagine a linear and exponent or an exponential sort of increase in all this, and you you can sort of see it happening very quickly in your mind's eye. But our project of the future are flawed all the time even as you say when a few months ago we all thought prompt engineering would be the next big thing and it's not we, you know I, I think chaos and wrinkles and limitations will occur in the development of all this and whatever we think the outcome of this technology will be it ain't necessarily so yeah i suppose we, we're all supposed to have jetpacks and hoverboards and all the rest of it and that never happened and so- it, it, well i i know that nothing ever happens in my life that i was expecting all right <laughs> if it happens it happens if it does happen it happens in a way i could never have foreseen that was just sort of demonically interesting uh, sort of impishly impishly inventive in a way i could never have foreseen it happening so I do believe in the old-fashioned things of human spirit and soul and shit like that. And I think that, you know, I'm sort of uh, pessimistically optimistic about the future. I think we will find a way to react to and fold AIs into our experience. I think life is bigger than AI. I don't think AI is bigger than life. That may be the most naive thing anyone has ever said (laughs) on the subject. We'll see. Thanks to Andy and thanks for listening. There's more details in the show notes about Andy, the book, and the other areas we discuss in the episode. If you enjoyed this, check out our other episodes where we speak to a range of creatives in other industries about making creativity pay.